0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant K. Stukey. As a reminder, in this podcast you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral max facial surgery. Most of the information shared will be based on personal experience and opinions. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, create a profile and log in. There you can post questions about topics that you would like to receive comments on from oral facial surgeons. On the website, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that will highlight the current episodes. Additionally, if you are a true fan of the podcast, you can purchase our sweet merch such as cool jackets, hoodies, and hats with the Everyday Oral Surgery logo on it. The last and most important thing, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know someone that you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com so I can get that set up for us. It's so important to keep making high quality content for all of us to learn. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Bill Jordan. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Sugarland, Texas. He's also the committee chair on the Committee on Government Affairs for AMOS. And Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You bet my pleasure. This is awesome. Excellent. So and can you give us just a brief history of your training and kind of how you got into working with this group?
1: Yeah. Sure, no, I appreciate it. and I appreciate you having me on. I'm happy to do it. I trained I went to dental school here in San Antonio, Texas. And had a lot of great mentors there. Did my oral and maxillofacial surgery training in Houston. I always said that I didn't want to train in a large training program, so I trained in the largest training program. <laughs> there you I go. Think, in the states, but then I finished there, and then I was fortunate to go into private practice right after finishing residency uh, in '97. So this is my 25th year in practice. So uh, wow. Nice. That was kind of my training. Yeah. So, you know, I guess my kind of foray into, you know, organized oral surgery started early on, you know, do you really plan to, you know, do that to, you know, end up, you know, like I am the current chair of the Committee on Governmental Affairs, but I think it starts your whole process, you know, it it starts early on, you know, with this whole idea of, you know, kind of giving back and being able to help and promote the specialty, which is really what it's all about. And you know, I had a lot of great mentors over the years that helped guide me, helped even as far back as in dental school. Our current past president of Amos, Dr. B.D. Tyner, was one of my mentors in dental school. He's one of the reasons that I was able to go into oral surgery. We did some research together and we've had a relationship. And Dr. Gil Triplett in San Antonio and Dr. Hugh Tilson, I mean, there's A lot of guys that, you know, were very instrumental in helping kind of guide me to do, you know, what I'm currently doing now. And, you know, going through residency, I had a you know dr Helfrich, our the chairman of the department when I was going through there was very strong in getting the residents kind of involved in Amos and sending us to the national meetings I mean as a resident you're just happy to not be part of the training program for a few days you know just to get out and you know but it was very important to be involved with Amos and I think that's really where a lot of it started and then as I got into private practice, I was very fortunate and blessed to go into practice with Dr. Jim Kennedy, who I guess, whether it was intentional or not, he just kind of said, okay, you're, I want you to serve on this committee. I want you to you know, get involved with your local society. And you know, he would, because he was already involved. He actually served as the president of the dental board for the state of Texas. And he was involved with that for a number of years and watching him go through that and see him go through his you know the process and the things that he has to deal with and you know that sort of thing you know early on kind of helped shape me and and i think the bottom line is that you know there's kind of this notion that you want to make things better than what you found it right and you know when we as a specialty have what we've been given you know as this specialty we have to try to make it better than what we found it and that's what you know you kind of hope to do and whatever aspect that you you know, choose to do that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And you are in private practice now in Sugarland, is mm-hmm. that correct? Yep, Sugarland,
1: Texas. Yep, yep. In and private, and I've been fortunate to be able to be in one practice the whole time. You know, when Dr. Kenny and I practiced together for a number of years, he retired, and then ultimately, I merged practices with my two current. Partners, Doctor Stapp, Doctor Brotherton, and we are fortunate to be out here in Sugarland. So
0: nice. How much? If you don't mind me asking, how much time does you know being the chair of the CJ take for you on average per month or week?
1: You know, it's a great question, and, and you know, there's emails and there's things that, that go on, and and I've been. On the Committee of Governmental Affairs for probably six, seven years now. And this is my first year as chair. And, you know, you're, you're going to spend a fair amount of time. It, it's a pretty busy committee, it involves a lot of different aspects. We set the legislative agendas for Amos. We are involved with trying to work with, you know, different organizations and promoting things and different legislative priorities that are going to help the specialty. And I think. You know, that time period, it's probably hard to put a number on it, but it's a time commitment, you know, it's not something that you're gonna kinda do on the fly. But I think that's a big part of getting involved in organized oral surgery. I mean, yes, my involvement as the Committee on Governmental Affairs is, you know, currently what I'm doing, but you know, having been involved in a lot of different, you know, aspects, not only local organized oral surgery through like in our particular case, the Houston Society of Oral Surgeons and you know, at the state level, you know, at the Texas Society of of and Facial Surgeons, and then, you know, the national level being involved with Amos, I think the real key you have to ask yourself when you want to be involved is that, you know, if I'm not willing to step up and do something to help to try to improve, Mm -hmm. then you can't really gripe about it, you know. And I've heard over the years, you know, people in local meetings and state and national meetings are always kind of griping about, oh, what, is, what does Amos do or what do we do here? What do they really do for us? Well, I mean, unless you're really willing to step up and say, hey, I'm going to be involved, I'm not going to sit back and just say, hey, I'm going to let it happen to me. Because I've always said legislatively, if you want to go to bed tonight doing what you think you know how to do and then have it change in the morning – that can happen legislatively, good or bad, you know, which has happened before. And you ask the people in North Carolina currently, right now, with they were forced or faced with some some pretty serious issues with in terms of anesthesia, which is obviously the big topic currently, but that is the one thing that with one swipe of a legislative pen, it can change the way you practice and what you've done. And if you're not willing to To kind of step up and do that and take care of it and try to protect what we have, then, you know, you can't really say anything about it.
0: For sure. Yeah, I feel like there is just a huge need, you know, for every generation to help out with our profession. I think there's probably a lot of people who have good mentors like you, you know, who kind of naturally get into it because they've seen good examples, but then probably the majority don't have good mentors that show them how to get involved. And we just kind of let, you know, whatever happened, happen (laughs) for better, for worse. But certainly there's a lot of issues facing us today. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a good statement. Yeah. There are a lot of issues that we have to deal with.
0: I mean, what's the first and foremost thing? Is it mainly our anesthesia rights that you've been working on lately or what in your mind, what is it?
1: Well, anesthesia is probably the most important aspect of our practice that is fundamentally under fire currently. And it's been for a number of years where people have, you know, have argued that we shouldn't do, it's a single provider technique, you know, where if you're going to do the surgery and the anesthesia at the same time, that you shouldn't do that. You know, that inherently that's just not safe, it doesn't do well. And so the very, you know, core of our existence and our training has been under fire at, you know, local levels and national levels as well. So I think that our ability to deliver anesthesia is probably one of the most important aspects, which is what North Carolina is in the middle of going through right now. Yeah. Because they're, you know, they're And this is what I was talking about from a legislative standpoint. You got a senator who, and there was an unfortunate death in the office. Well, the legislator said, well, because of this, not knowing the full facts of the case, because that's the big part of it, we want to come in and change it. We want everybody in the state of North Carolina and also understand that these battles, if you will, are fought at the state level, you know, so state by state is going to be different. So in North Carolina, they petitioned the dental board, the legislator, Petition the dental board to change the anesthetic rules so that, you know, you had to have a separate provider. Same thing happened out in California where, you know, the death of Caleb, you know, caused a lot of the same type of, of issues that have come up. And that's probably the number one thing that is, you know, legislatively can be changed. And that would affect people tomorrow morning, which it happened in Florida actually. Several years ago, there were deaths in the dental office. Now they don't necessarily specify, and here's the other problem is you don't specify is it a death in a dental office or an oral surgeons or periodontist or whatever office is just you know grouped into one. And so the governor just said, okay, no dental office anesthesia, period. Stop it tomorrow morning he just put a moratorium on. He's like, we got to figure out what's going on. So he just stopped it. So you went to bed one night and woke up the next morning and you could not put people to sleep in your office. And that Uh can really happen. Yeah. And that's what I think the younger, if I were to speak to the younger surgeons that maybe don't fully understand that and appreciate it because you know our ability to come out and do whatever it is you want to do, if you want to do... You know, head and neck cancer. If you want to do implants or third molars, or you want to do orthodontic surgery, whatever it may be, your ability to do that has been, you know, laid out by people who have gone before us. Right? There's a lot yeah. of people who have put a lot of work and energy into allowing us the privileges that we have, and I think that's the thing that I would encourage to most of the younger surgeons is to understand that because. And I was there. I mean, everybody was there. You get out, you start working. I mean, you got bills to pay, you got things to do. I got to get in and I need to, you know, I want to move my practice. And I think I heard, you know, correctly, you have six kids. Yeah, Is that what I heard?
0: Yeah, six six kids.
1: So, I mean, you know, you're working, you know, a lot, and that's what a lot of people do. And we just get into that. And we just expect that when we show up in the office in the morning, we're going to be able to do whatever it is we want to do because... We've done that, right? That's what's happened, and so it's not always the case, and it's something that people need to understand. And there's a lot of people working very hard on our behalf, you know. Especially at Amos, our staff at Amos is outstanding. I mean, here in Texas too, we have a wonderful, you know, state director, and we've got some wonderful people, you know, Kelly and Shy and Lisa Aguilar and Jan Teplitz are three. Of our staff here that help support us and then you've got all the Amos staff. Jan Teflis actually came from Amos and I'm in awe that they seem to work harder for our specialty than we do. You know, that's the thing that's very I would like to get across to, you know, the younger people. There's a lot of people working very hard that you don't understand, you know, that you can utilize and that it's there for you. You know, I think Amos, I think your membership in Amos is probably tremendously underutilized, you know, that that you don't, I liken it to, you know, if you get a new iPhone or you get a new phone and it's got all the bells and whistles, you know, and you've got this really expensive phone and you take selfies and you answer phones and you check your emails, you send texts, you know, and there's so many more aspects that you don't utilize on your phone, right? And that's kind of what I think Amos is. There's so many things that are underutilized in terms of, you know, like for yourself and you have difficulty coding, you know, you can call Amos and you can talk to somebody and say, Hey, how do I code this? How can, am I coding this correctly? And they'll give you a whole array of things that can help insurance and everything else. And I just think that, you know, that's the one thing I'd like to, you know, I guess it really let the younger people know that that's available to them and there's a lot of people that are working hard and they need to understand that and they need to take accountability for that quite honestly you know you can't i think if you're going to just go sit in your office and expect that you know you can continue to do what you do and not do anything to help it not do anything to help promote that is like sticking your head in the sand and you will get run over if you do that. Something will happen. Cause then when something does come up, you know, where do you go? What
0: do you do? Right. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: So I think that's a big part about trying to give back to your specialty. And are you really giving back to your specialty? Yes, you are, but you're also helping to protect it, you know.
0: Yeah. So I mean maybe that would be a good discussion just to kind of run through some of the things that, you know, young surgeons getting out of residency can actually do to help the specialty as a whole to keep you know progressing and protect their rights? I mean, one certainly is becoming a member of these good organizations like Amos and their state board and, you know, paying your dues and funding and paying attention. But what other stuff can we do?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that involvement is the key. And involvement is a wide scope. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to get involved. I think you should get involved in your local and your state organized oral surgery because there's so much information that can be shared and brought back to the local level. I mean, I'm also involved in the Amos House of Delegates in which we, you know, kind of help you know, promote and pass the bylaws and and any resolutions and anything for, you know, how that affects our members on a day-to-day basis. But I take that information back not only to our state, but to our local level and be able to share that information with them. So if you're not that involved, at least if you can get involved in your local societies and your state societies, that's first and foremost, because that's how you'll get information. You know, if you I don't know very many people if they don't get the emails or if they open the emails from your organization that's one way to do it you know there's always you know people are always fundraising and you know that's part of advocacy as well as getting involved and you know yes it takes money to be able to do you know what it is you need to do so if it's at the local level or at the state level You know, those are the kind of things that, you know, you're going to have to understand. And one thing I think that people can do is to understand advocacy as well and, you know, kind of bounce back and forth a little bit, because I think it's kind of intertwined. If you want to talk about what people can do, you call up, you find out who your state legislator is. You know, you're going to have a representative and you're going to have a senator. And you call them up and say, hey, I want to bring you to my office and I want to show you what I do. So for anesthesia, for example, let me explain to you how we do things, you know, that what we do is safe. Let me show it to you. I'll give the I went blank on the oral surgeon's name that practices in the same town where this death occurred. He invited the senator, the state senator who was pushing the changes the anesthetic changes into his office. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, jumping out of the pan into the fire. He said, okay, I'll bring you into my office. Let me show you what we do. Let me show you the safety, all the things that we do and how we make this safe. This is not an issue with our, the standard of care for delivering anesthesia. You know, let me explain that to you. That's one way you can do that is to Bring him in because if you explain this to legislators, that legislator can go in. And when this topic comes up, they said, well, hey, I have a relationship with this oral surgeon here. I've been to his office. I've seen how it works. I understand. I have a, you know, a, a relationship with him. I can talk to this point, you know, specifically because if you don't show them what we do, other people are going to talk about what we do. You know, and other people that aren't very friendly to our way of practicing. In advocacy, there's a very common phrase that if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. And that is abundantly true because if you don't sit down and have a conversation with somebody in a position of authority who can make real changes, you know, at a legislative level... If you don't have that conversation with them, somebody else who's sitting at the table having the conversation telling the exact opposite story, like you should not go into an ulcer. There's people out there telling them you should not do it. Their way of doing anesthesia is not safe. And they're telling stories that just aren't based in facts. And we have to be able to support that. We have to be, I mean, we have to be able to counter that and talk about what we do. Anesthesia, for example, we need to be able to explain our techniques are safe and they're safe because we show the information. That's part of, you know, what Amos is doing is collecting a lot of this information because one of the things that's very difficult, it might sound easy in theory, like, oh, let's just tell them how safe we are. You know, we do a very good job and we're very safe. Yes, those are true, but you got to be able to back it up. You just can't say it. you got to be able to prove it, right? And so how do we know? How many anesthetics do we do every year? You know, as oral and maxillofacial surgeons across the nation, there's 9,000 oral surgeons across the nation. How many anesthetics do we do in a year? You know, how many, you know, adverse events per anesthetics do we have? And those are the numbers that you have to have And Amos has been working really, really hard to develop those numbers so that we can, you know, defend what we do and participating in things at Amos where, you know, they might ask you to, hey, we need some information from you. Well, then you provide that information, you know, so that you can be able to, you know, correctly inform people in position of power, if you will you know, legislators, because they can make changes in laws. I mean, you know, you look at the different laws that have been passed over the years, you know, it's the second the law is passed. It's just that it's law, you
0: know? Yeah. Dang. That is crazy. You know, that story of North Carolina, it's frustrating that they can just say, oh, all dental clinics, regardless of specialty of training. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if, you know, in those situations, is it helpful, you know, to have extra credentialing, to have an MD and to, you know, to whatever, say that you're more than just a dental clinic? I don't know.
1: And, you know, we are a specialty of dentistry. Number one. Absolutely, we are. However, we have additional training outside of dental schools. Our dental colleagues got out. They graduated. They went into private practice. We chose to do a four-year, a six-year degree you know, whatever that may be, your training is going to be, you know, in addition to dental school. And that's what your legislators need to know. They need to understand what your training is that, yes, although we are part of dentistry, we are not general dentists. You know, we actually have gone and done additional training. And we have trained in anesthesia for four or six years. And, you know, we've all been in the operating room as anesthesia residents, you know, innovating people and, you know, the whole nine. I mean, we've spent that time and they need to know that it's not just because the world and everybody outside of here looks at us as dentists. You're a dentist. Well, yes, we are. But we also have additional training and that's the part that legislators and people need to understand. That's why it's important to be able to say, hey, yes, we are dentists, but we're really a specialty of dentistry that specializes in all the things that we do, everything that we do from anesthesia on up. And, you know, this is why we can do that because we have additional training. We're not just a dentist. And at the same time, you know, set standards for, you know, if you're going to do office space and anesthesia, you know, if you're going to get out of dental school and go into private practice and take a weekend course and you want to do anesthesia, fine. But here's the standard. You have to practice to this standard, whether it's an office anesthesia evaluation, it's development of emergency protocols. I mean, all the things that we need to do in our offices to make sure we deliver safe care for our patients. You know, those are the things that you have to do. And we have to be able to tell you know, legislators about that.
0: I'm sure it's helpful too. I think all states now have their, whatever, every three years you have to have your exam, not exam, but, you know, other providers come in and see what you're doing and verify that you're being safe. I'm sure all things like that to show that there's some checks on us and whatever are good. Right.
1: Yeah, we have to be able to every year do or I know in Texas, it's a five year schedule and I believe it's probably three to five years for most states. Each state will be a little bit differently, but you come in and do your office anesthesia evaluation and that's going to be part of, you know, most states, it allows you to be part of the state society. And in order to be a member of Amos, you have to be a member of the state society, the state component society. And, you know, you have to be a member of AMOS to be able to get your malpractice insurance if it's through OMSNIC. And so, you know, a lot of that comes down to the ability to be able to do that. Now, there's a lot of people that do not have, I wouldn't say a lot, I think some of the older people had different, you know, malpractice insurance before OMSNIC, and they may not be subject to that restriction. However, it's still good to understand and practice a certain standard of care, which is, again, part of AMOS, their push is to, we passed some resolutions in the House of Delegates last year to implement simulation training. AMOS has been working hard to develop simulation training because that's really where the education for anesthesia is heading. It'll be simulation. So that's going to be part of it. And then, you know, the emergency drills that you need to run through with your staff and basically kind of setting the standard for delivery of office based anesthesia. Because if we don't set the high standards, somebody else will come in and do it for us. It won't necessarily be favorable if that's the case.
0: For sure. And I'm surprised too how many misconceptions there are among, you know, anesthesiologists that are, you think, well, we rotate in the hospital and they should all know what we do and stuff. But, you know, I was talking to an anesthesiologist the other day who was shocked. He was asking me some questions and I said, yeah, you know, we, he was asking what we use. And I said, we use some propofol and ketamine and versed And he was like, you use propofol in the dental office. That's just, you know, that's not right. And he was going off on his whole spiel. And, you know, we kind of got into it about how much training I had done. And he was surprised, you know, to learn that. But I think there's just a lot of different misconceptions, like you're saying, and a lot of feelings. I mean, he even said, oh, in my own hospital, I can't push propofol, you know, in a room by myself. So you shouldn't be allowed to do that in your office. And there's just so many weird things that happen.
1: Well, that's exactly kind of what I'm talking about is that's the microcosm that we practice in, right? Because you go and you do your residency, you get out, you you know sedate people in your residencies and you do your rotations and you do anesthesia and you you know, you graduate and you beat on your chest and you're like, you know, I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. I can conquer the world, right? You go outside, you go out into private practice and you say, well, I'm here and I'm, you know, you should send all your patients to me because I'm this great trained oral surgeon and I can do all this stuff. But the reality of it is, is once you get out into the community, now these are the type of things that you have to deal with. There's a lot of anesthesiologists that don't understand what we do. They, you know, there's a lot of training that You know, you have to look at and say, hey, did you really do this and how can you do this type of thing and how can you be able to do that? And if you think anesthesiologists think that way, how do you think, you know, the mother of the PTA and the, you know, the engineer and the people working at the local grocery store that are all that are patients, you know, what do you think their concept is? Their concept is we're a dentist. I don't care how many letters you have after the end of your name. If it's a dual degree, you get your fellowship in the College of Surgeons. I mean, you can get the FACD, the you know LMNOP. It doesn't really matter what you have after. You're a dentist, and that's what I think people need to understand. Because if you understand that, it helps you kind of drive your you know the, the way that you do things a little bit differently. Because you do have to defend that. Unfortunately, you can't just say, hey, I'm an oral surgeon, therefore I can. Yeah, you know? exactly. They're like, I don't really care. I mean, you know, I, I, would, I often joke that, you know, my mother didn't even really know what I did. You know, she was just like, oh, you know, she's so happy. Oh, you're, you know, she calls me Billy. She's, oh, Billy, you know, that, she didn't care. You know, she's like, no. You know, if you said, hey, what does he do? The, she's like, I don't know. You know, but he's a doctor. And that's, and really, I mean, I have people I play golf with and they're like, okay, now, what do you do? I was like, seriously, I've operated on your kids and, and you're asking me now what I do, you know, but it doesn't really matter. You know, Yeah. you can go into the hospital and if people don't have experience with oral surgeons as they're training, they're not going to know. They're like, no, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? What are you going to do to this person's face? You know, and then they find out you do stuff in your office. So it's a constant battle. And I guess one of the things that I think is a very eye-opening experience, and I would encourage all of your listeners, if you have not done this, or if you yourself haven't done this, go to Day on the Hill, which every year we have a Day on the Hill where it allows us to go to Capitol Hill and meet with the staff of your congressmen, your senators, and talk about some of the legislative priorities that we have. Yes, it's advocating on behalf of your specialty where you get to talk to them and kind of explain to them what we do. And these are some of the legislative priorities that we have, whether it's, you know, we can talk about those in minutes. But the thing about Day on the Hill that is so powerful and it brings this point home better than anything else you could ever say. You walk into Capitol Hill and you start walking from one side to the other because you got to go meet with this representative, which is over here. And it's a 15 minute walk across the other side. And you walk through the halls and you see how big Washington, D.C. is. And you walk in to meet with the staff. For me, it would be, you know, Senator Cruz or Senator Cornyn or, you know, my representative is, you know, Troy Nels. And so you go meet with their staff and the staff comes out and the staffer is 25, 26 years old. But they are the ones that can really have an impact on the congressman or congresswoman. But you're meeting in a hallway because there's cramped spaces anywhere and there's no real like meeting room. You may or may not get to meet with the actual senator, which if you do is pretty much like hitting a home run. I mean, it's a little bit like the lottery because they're very seldom do you get the opportunity to meet with the actual congressman or congresswoman or whatever it may be because they're off doing their things. And But what it brings home is that you're sitting out there and you're in, huddled in the hallway. And, you know, the Association of meat packers walk by or the Association of Engineers or the Tire, you know, the Truckers Association or the, you know, the National Association of Tire People, all of the people across the country, every different, you know, job that you can think of. They want to meet and they're trying to promote their specialty or whatever it may be. And so you meet, you realize how small we are. And so that's what I was trying to bring home is that you come out pounding your chest thinking you're this great person. But when you go to Capitol Hill, you realize you're a very, very small fish in a very, very large pond. And so, to me, it really brings home the point how hard we have to work to protect our specialty. Now, this may be a weird analogy, but I don't know if you've ever seen the show Yellowstone. Yep. You may or may not have seen that. But yeah, yeah. So, it's about a family who's protecting their ranch, right? And that's right. what the whole episode, the whole deal. Well, then you go back and there's an origin story on 1883. And it kind of shows what this family has had to do to acquire this land. And I think that is a very good analogy to our specialty. There are so many people 30, 40, 50 years ago that worked so hard to be able to allow us to even work in a hospital, to do an HMP, work so hard to protect it. And they fight very hard to protect the specialty right? And so now that the new kids, you know, the younger residents, the younger surgeons, they're all coming out and now they have this land, right? This specialty, which is great. And we just do get to go out and do what we do, but you got to fight for it. You have to fight every day to be able to do that and to promote the specialty and advocate on behalf of the specialty. And, you know, it's about giving back. It's about protecting it, quite honestly. I mean, Some people say, well, you know, I can't believe all the stuff that you do and, you know, what you're involved with. And my wife says that a lot too, actually, but, you know, it's almost selfish, you know, from one standpoint and that, look, I'm doing this to protect what I love and what I want to continue to do and be able to do. So maybe it's a labor of love. Maybe it's just a little bit crazy. Who really knows? Maybe it's a little bit of both, you know, for that standpoint. But I think that you know, it's amazing to be able to do this and to do all aspects. It's not just what we do in private practice, but academic institutions, those that are in, you know, training programs that have chosen that as their life work, or they might be in rural areas or whatever it may be. I mean, there's a long list of different aspects of the specialty that, you know, we have to try to work for. It's Much, much bigger than just one person. And I think that's what Day on the Hill really brings home is how big of a pond we swim in and what a small fish we are.
0: Yeah, yeah, and how important it is to try to represent ourselves as best we can and and make our voice heard when there's so many other people trying to make their own voices heard.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that people, I want people to really truly understand is that when you're in your office and you're treating patients, you're making treatment decisions, you're deciding, is this a patient that I want to put to sleep in my office? Or is this someone I need to take to the surgery center, to the hospital, or Mm -hmm. however that treatment decision is, realize that it's not just you that you represent, but the entire specialty. Because you know, something happens if you make a poor decision and you put somebody to sleep that you really shouldn't have put to sleep. If you're not doing things to the standard of care that is out there, then you're impacting the rest of the specialty. Other people are going to suffer from the things that you do or don't do. You know, if anything else, if you can, you know, if younger surgeons understand that and realize that we're all kind of in this boat together, you might be practicing down the street from somebody else and you're friendly competitors, right? But in the overall scheme of things, you're really, we're all rowing the boat in the same direction, or at least we should, you know, and it has, you know, treatment decisions can impact your entire specialty.
0: For sure. And that whole North Carolina thing that, I mean, that even shows you that we're in a boat with the general dentists who take, you know, whatever two or three week courses and do sedation. Because clearly what one of them does can affect us if they have a bad outcome and everyone lumps us together.
1: We are in a big dental boat. You're exactly right. I mean, and and it's true. And that's why we've got to help set standards. You know, this is a story and this is a true story. When Dr. Kennedy, my partner, was the president of the dental board here in Texas, they were having an argument over whether ASA 1 or 2 patients needed to have an EKG need to have EKG monitoring. And, you know, so inherently, you know, we're just like, okay, if you're going to put a needle in somebody's arm and you're going to give them medicine, they need to be hooked up to every monitor we could possibly have. That's just kind of inherently what we see, you know, they're like, well, I only use Versed and fentanyl. I don't really deeply sedate patients. I only use Versed and fentanyl. And it's like, you don't think somebody can stop breathing with, two milligrams of Versed and you show them the fentanyl bottle, you don't think they'll stop breathing. Mm -hmm. And so he was having this argument with the dentist and he said, so what, let me ask you a question. Dr. Kenny said, so you agree that we should do, you know, EKGs on ASA twos and threes, right? You agree with that, but you're just saying ASA ones, you know, young healthy kid, you don't need an EKG. And they said, yeah, that's correct. So he said, so you have the EKG monitor in your office. Correct. Yes. And so he said, so is it really just over the cost of the EKG pads is what we're talking about? Because you already have the monitor. And one of the guys said, well, no, it's not that. It's just we may not know what we're looking at. And so it's like, okay, well, then all the more reason that you shouldn't be putting people to sleep you know, and those are the kind of things that we have to try to make sure you keep at every state level. Everybody's practicing, you know, at the same level, right? That's what we all need to to be. And again, you can't just say, oh, well, there are well, if there's a death in a pediatric dental office, if it's in a general dental office, if it's in a periodontist, if it's in a oral surgeon's office, if it's in a prosthodontist office, It's a death in a dental office. Period. That's what happens. And so, yes, we have to separate ourselves, or I mean, at least not necessarily separate ourselves, but be able to explain the differences in training. But at the same time, we need to make sure that all our dental colleagues are like, look, you know, folks, we're all in this together. We all need to be in the same boat. And I'm going to tell. I'll tell you the story. I think it was Dr. Raffetto. When he was president of Amos and they were all the, everything in California that was going on, he literally, and I think I got the story correct, but he got a call from the aunt of Caleb saying, you shouldn't be doing anesthesia, you know, as especially you guys should not be doing anesthesia, what you do, because, you know, these are all the things you should not be doing that. Literally hangs up the phone, gets a call from, I'm not sure if it's the pediatric, dentists or somebody, and they're like, your standards are too high. We're not oral surgeons. We can't live up to that standard. So the standards you set are too high. So literally within an hour, you got a phone call with the two ends of the spectrum saying, you shouldn't be doing, you're not trained enough. You shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And then people from our own, you know, from dentistry saying, your standards are too high. So literally those are some of the issues that you have to you know, you're fighting and you're trying to not only prove that what we do is safe, it's efficient, it really provides a great service to our patients. And, you know, we also need to make sure that all of our dental colleagues are following the same, you know, we're all practicing by the same standards.
0: Yes. Those are good points, you know. So, what I hear you saying is ways that we kind of help and contribute to the Profession and protect our rights, being part of these associations, practicing, you know, good quality care, going to things at good events like Day on the Hill, being involved in leadership if you can. What other type of stuff would you recommend?
1: I think you're exactly right. It starts with practicing the highest level of care and doing the best for our patients, right? that's going to be one way that you help protect the specialty, because that's first and foremost. That's what we all, you know, we want to provide for our patients. So that's step number one. Secondly, taking it a step farther is getting involved in your local society and finding out, you know, is there a group of, of oral students to meet is there one in your city is there one in your area you know and getting involved with them and being there to help and gain information and then you know looking at what's done at the state level. How can you get involved with the state level? You know, attend your state meetings, you know. If you don't have state meetings, start state meetings because the last thing you want to do is end up, you know, North Carolina fortunately was able through the help of you know, a lot of support from Amos through state advocacy grants. We were able to, Amos was able to offer them financial support so that they could hire lobbyists, you know, that you could help fend off these kind of attacks. But you want to do that before it happens, right? You want to be ready. You want to be prepared. You don't want to be reactive. You want to be proactive. So being involved in that, understanding that, getting involved, going to national meetings and seeing what is being done talking to people in your state. And, you know, if you know somebody that's involved, you know, pick up a phone and say, I don't know anybody in my state. You might, you know, there are people in your state that are involved and we can get you in contact with them and you can say, Hey, what can I do to help? How can I do that? You know, just don't put your head in the sand and think, you know, you're alone and you're the only one that has, you know, huge debts that you've got to pay from residency. And I mean, everybody's in it.
0: That's a good point. And then real quick, as far as some of the other things that the Committee on Government Affairs deals with, I mean, other than Anastasia, do you deal with like licensing and trying to make that more kind of uniform across the whole country?
1: I mean, that's a great comment that we've talked about that. The uniform, there's been some discussions, but again, with most licensing issues being handled at the state level and what each state is going to determine, okay, this is what we, you know, want for you to do to be able to practice in our state. Those are going to vary, you know, from state to state and trying to establish what we've had talks about trying to establish a, you know, kind of a universal, you know, requirements, if you will, that, you know, states can abide by. But, you know, a lot of states just say, hey, I don't want be telling me what to do, you know, we can manage it. But I think having some guidelines and standards and, you know, that we have as far as the parameters of care and that sort of thing that we do have kind of set up helps each individual state with some of those, which again is going to come back to organized oral surgery in that state, being able to, you know, stand up and say, Hey, wait a minute, this particular change that you're talking about, you know, instituting is not going to be good and for these reasons. So each and every week I have a, a phone call with Amos staff and they part of that phone call is our update, you know, each and every state. And you know, Sandy Gunther is is a rock star from I mean she's forgotten more than I'll probably ever know about what goes on with each individual state, but she knows if there's a bill in North Dakota that's, you know, going to affect anesthesia or if there are a You know, mid level provider bill in Kansas or Utah has this, and that, you know, up in the state of Rhode Island, you know, this is what came up before the dental board. She has her finger on the pulse and knows exactly what's happening in all of the states that are out there and allows us the opportunity to say, Hey, how can we support you? How can we, you know, help with that from a national perspective? And also, getting the states like the North Carolina deal there's an app called Voter Voice which our Amos staff can populate with letters that can be sent to you know their state legislators and they put together this you know well-written letter that you know says exactly what we want to do you just click on it and send it so it it's a way to promote kind of a grassroots efforts which was very important in North Carolina they had you know probably 80% of all North Carolina oral surgeons you know participated in this voter voice and even had some of the general dentists and that said hey I want to support the oral surgeons and they sent in letters on our behalf so those kind of tools are available and ready to go they're also done for national you know, legislative priorities that we have. And one of the big pushes that we've had recently was the attempt to include dentistry in Medicare Part B, the Medicare for all. And that was a big concern. See, those are things that I don't even think the everyday, you know, oral surgeon in the trenches really, truly understands what a potential problem that could have been to try to incorporate that. You know, at Amos, we're all for trying to you know, include dental benefits in Medicare to certain degrees, but to try to include that in Medicare Part B was, you know, would would have been a disaster in a lot of different proportions, but being able to advocate and send letters to Congress and let them know how we felt about that. And, you know, the ADA made a big push about it as well. So we kind of locked arms with the ADA and said, hey, we're all you know we definitely are rowing this boat together so again it's those alliances that you form that help you protect what we do and that's as important as any specific legislative you know priority that we might have at the national level it's not so much the exact bill that we're trying to support it's the relationships that we make with other organizations. It's the relationships that you have with your congressmen, your legislators. Those are when you can pick up the phone and say, hey, Senator, let me talk to you about this. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do, right? They work for us. We need to be able to pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I don't agree with this. And this is why, you know, and this is something that they, and we've got to educate them because there's no way they can possibly know that. That's incumbent upon us to be able to educate them.
0: For sure. Yeah, this has been really enlightening for me. I think it's great to hear the different ways that Amos is trying to help us and the ways we can try to help Amos and our lawmakers, you know, to kind of make good laws for our specialty and our patients and things like that. So I really appreciate you taking the time. If there are listeners who, you know, have further questions or about this, are you okay if they reach out to you, or what are your thoughts on that? Please,
1: yeah, no, I'm happy, I'd be more than happy to, to talk with anybody and answer any questions that you have because I think it's a great opportunity to see And I appreciate you know the opportunity to be able to sit here with you today and kind of you know explain these things, and especially if you have some younger listeners, whether they're residents or dental students or whoever that may be, those are the people that really need to hear this and understand it the most. We've always had residents that have come with us today on the Hill. And I still, to this day, keep in touch with them. And you, those are the guys that you see involved in the leadership meetings. they are getting involved in the leadership and that's what you want to see because you need those people that come in and, and get it. And I understand not everybody's going to be able to do all that, but you know, like at other things, but Just understanding what it is and don't put your head in the sand is imperative. So, yeah, I'm more than happy to to talk with anybody that has questions.
0: Awesome. Thank you for being willing to do that. We end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So my first one for you is, what is the best book you've read in the past year?
1: You know, I think probably the best book is Make Your Bed. It's written by a Navy SEAL. It talks about, you know, getting up and you make your bed and you've accomplished something for the day. So that helps kind of set your day going forward. So now you've accomplished something for the day. Now you go on to the next thing.
0: Nice. I'm going to look that up. Give it a read. Next question is, what non-oral surgery thing do you do in your life or have you done that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? You
1: know, it's kind of interesting. I know from looking at me, you may not do but one of the things that I have really learned is yoga has been very beneficial for me from a just a clearing the mechanism type of deal, breathing. And I saw one of your podcasts, I think Bob McNeil was talking about that, and I haven't heard it, but that has been a few years back. I started it just kind of my son, they were in high school or something, they went to go do a hot yoga class, and you know. I was like, well, I can do that, you know. And I went in. I was like, I clearly can't do this, and you know. But I, I did it longer than they did, so which was really nice. the, the goal. But I think that has been something that has I've learned and learned more about. But that's probably one thing that's that's helped me. And flexibility is not bad, you know. It's it's very physically demanding what we do, you know, day to day. It's physically demanding, and so. Being able to do that in positions and understand, you know, holding myself and that sort of thing has helped. Nice.
0: Okay. Next question. What forceps do you use to extract tooth number five?
1: I usually like a 101 AS. It's got the little serrated edges on it so I can grip it. If it's a root tip, my go-to has been Rongeurs. It's like taking out a splinter with your fingertips, but it works you know, where you can grab it. And I like that.
0: That's awesome. So you don't use the ash.
1: <laughs> no, I use that on the lowers. I don't use it on the uppers. I do like it. And it's really funny. I like it on the lower right. I like it on the lower right side. I'm right handed. So I stand on the right. I like it there. And, and I like a 150 for the lower left. Now, it's just the angle that I stand in. And, but I do like the ash on the lower right, which I didn't think I really did. But Dr. Kenny used it. And I thought, oh, I'll try that. And so kind of Early on, I was like, huh, I'll try this, and it's worked well. Nice. Okay.
0: Last question. What is your favorite quote?
1: (laughs) My wife would laugh at this one, but one of the quotes I love is from Inky Johnson, and if you haven't heard of him, I mean, I know he has a podcast, but he's got a great story, but he's a motivational speaker, and he's the best quote is, control the controllables. You know, Okay. in life- you know, we can't control what Congress is going to do to a certain degree, right? You can't control what other people, you can control yourself. You can control what you do, your attitude, how you handle things, how you react to things. So control the controllables.
0: No, I like that. That's a really good quote. Important to focus on the things you can control and, and to work on them and control them and forget about the rest. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you doing this. Hopefully it's helpful to some of our listeners out there.
1: Well, I'm happy to do it. Yeah very cool. I mean, considering some of the people you've had on here before, I'm, you know, I'm not sure why you chose me, but I'm happy you did and I'm happy to talk about it. So, it was a lot of fun. Awesome.
0: Very, very cool and uh, hopefully, you know, our listeners out there can do their best to do good safe practicing and help out uh, furthering, you know, the hope specialty as a whole and making a good kind of image for ourselves and for our patients. So, I think this has been helpful.
1: Good.
0: I hope so. Have a good rest of Saturday. I appreciate it.
1: Hi, right, buddy. You bet. You too. Take care.
0: Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed, or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.